Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night to you, good Bliss. Good morning. Good listening. Welcome to our elaborate studios. <laughs> I was just thinking exactly. about that. You know, I got this painting behind me, which has glass on it, which gets this glare on it. it makes me look like my head's on fire. And, you know, you're always in a different location in your in your house. When we, and I just got back from being in Arizona in an elaborate podcast studio. It's like with three producers, you know, behind me. <laughs> and five cameras and all that stuff and here we are with our zoom wouldn't that be nice wouldn't it be nice to have just one producer i think that would be so fun calling out we'd we'd like a producer (laughs) anybody totally inspired to take us to the next level we are open (laughs) well it would be really nice if we were back together again sitting in chairs in the same room that would be nice um sipping coffee or whatever but here we are the fall is in the air at least mm-hmm. here in Canada it is it's chilly today the wind is up and the temperature is down uh and you know what that means when the when falls in the air no <laughs> I love when I stump you it's cold and flu season oh yeah exactly. so I I thought we would talk about uh influenza in pregnancy today as our topic I love that because it seems rather timely and uh, there's some good health tips and there's some not so good uh, <laughs> health advice that's out there. And so I try to sort through it. Like I, I, like I often do with my deep dive this time, you didn't give me the homework. I gave it to myself. I know it's great. Right. <laughs> so um, what's, what's up with you? Uh, waiting on babies. I've got four, four babies. It's interesting because we did um, the podcast that came out this week was about due dates. And I have a client who uh, there's a discrepancy at the end of her pregnancy. I think she was just going along with it until we got to the end. And then she's like, that's not my due date. <laughs> and so, you know, me, I'm normally very like, okay, cool. Let's talk about it. Um But it's interesting because none of the information that I have, not her LMP, not her IUI date, not her early ultrasound, none of them match up with the date that she wants to be due. And I'm like, hmm, did she just like pull it out of the air? I don't know. I think you said it it should be guest dates. That's what you said. So she's just guessing. (laughs) She is. She is. And um, like I said, you know that I'm usually very flexible, but her baby is measuring smaller than what my guest date is. So if we move it up a week anyway, and she does deliver early like she did last time. Yeah, it's just one of those. It's kind of interesting. So I found that to be timely uh, that our topic had to do with something that I was dealing with with one of my clients this week. Me too. I just got a uh, Instagram message from... I think it's becca.xo.co. I don't know what CO stands for. XO I like. 
Um, <laughs> and she just said, uh, what, uh, my quote last week was something about if doctors are doing growth scan on you every week, they're either greedy or stupid. And and I'm talking about growth scans. I'm not talking about surveillance scans. I want to make sure that's very clear to people. But she she writes, she wrote, uh, yeah, that's exactly the moment I fired my OB. <laughs> <laughs> I have a I have a great um, letter once you check in about a positive OB hospital story. But why don't we hear what's going on with you? Okay, well, I've done I did a couple of uh, uh, interviews this past week. Um, one on a VBAC uh, podcast from Australia. When it when it comes out, I'll make sure people hear about that. And then I had the good fortune of spending an hour and a half with uh, Kemi, Birth Joy Johnson from London, and her partner Carmen. On the podcast, uh, which I'm not sure when that will come out, but that was yesterday, and it's just lovely. First of all, you know how much I love a British accent, so (laughs) but she's just a warrior. And Mm -hmm. if Instagram person, I asked her about that. I said, "How much time do you spend a day doing that stuff?" And she says, "It's a lot of time. It is a lot of time. But time we don't seem to have you and I." People are changing the way that they're practicing. People are changing the way that they're experiencing their births uh, because of work that people like Emmy are doing. And even, you know, if we affect one family at a time, there will be ripple effects downstream. So I generation. Yeah. And then I've been watching a lot of sports. My teams aren't doing well, uh, which has been very disappointing. Um, and I've had a really nice week because I've only got another week before I head off to uh, Ireland. And uh, so we're going to record early next week. And I, we can give people a, a forecast of the fact that we might do what I would call our inconsistently annual Halloween special. <laughs> <laughs> Where we do a, a scary story. Um, yeah. yeah. And I'm saving up some dumb doctor dogma that I was going to try to do this week. But then the flu idea, like, popped into my head and I said, yeah, you know what? That's probably more important right now because of the time of the year that it is. So we'll do that. But uh, so that's bringing me up to date. No, but you didn't mention the most important conversation that you had this week of all. Uh Oh, I'm in big trouble. I love it. I stumped him. You guys, Um, we did a live on Sunday um about c-sections and i'm getting a lot of really great feedback about that conversation unfortunately i don't think we can pull the audio off of instagram to make it a podcast but you can go and look at um my feed birthing bliss on instagram and i've saved it there it's about an hour-long conversation with dr Stu and i and one of our friends raquel who um had a hvac breach water birth kind (laughs) of With Dr. Stu after three cesareans. Um, and we just talk about the controversy of giving information um, to people and sometimes the trauma or, yeah, the trauma that can come up for women who have had C-sections. And so I think it was a really, I think we did a great job. Yeah, I think you 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 are such a sweet soul and you were, you were so sensitive to these people yeah. that were writing into you and you, you know, you wrote, even though you redundantly wrote it out, you said in the in the live that not everybody reads everybody else's comments. So you kept repeating yourself and reassuring people that we weren't being critical. We're be, we were being more critical of the caretakers and the system than we were of the fact that 
Um, some people have C-sections, necessary or unnecessary, but it's still their experience and it yeah. deserves to be held in high esteem. Uh, we did learn something though. We learned that we can't really record Zoom and Instagram Live at the same time. <laughs> we have done it before. There was just some, we just, I didn't want to troubleshoot while we were actually live, but we've done it before. So there was, there was a delay. So I was hearing myself four seconds after I actually spoke the words. It was very, yeah. very. Yeah. Okay. So um, you want to start? You have a letter that you want to read with a good story because we have stories. I do. Uh, um, so this is from Lauren. Lauren in South Bend, Indiana. And she says, um, Dear Stu and Bliss, I wanted to thank you for the work you do on the Birthing Instincts podcast. As I'm typing this note, I'm holding my six-day-old baby girl who had a beautiful entry into this world. This was my third preg pregnancy, but second earthly child as I lost my second baby to miscarriage last November. I am one of the lucky women who worked with an OB who had and had a hospital birth that honored my preferences during pregnancy and delivery. My OB is a NA pro. I don't know what that is. Do you? No. Okay. Um, doctor. So I credit his natural approach to pregnancy and childbirth to his specialized training. We'll have to figure out what that is. Um, the Birthing Instincts podcast gave me relevant information for my pregnancy and empowered me to advocate for myself and my baby. I truly believe the information you provided me made me feel comfortable in choosing a quote unquote non-traditional options for both during pregnancy and delivery. I'm RH negative and felt confident in delaying any program treatment until after delivery and testing the baby's RH status thanks to your episode where you discuss the risks and benefits of treatment during pregnancy. Thankfully, my OB was supportive of my decision to forego program shot at 28 weeks. My baby is RH positive, so I did opt to receive treatment during after birth as my husband and I plan to have more children in the future. I also requested intermittent fetal monitoring during labor, which is hard to do in the hospital, I have to say, so, um, which my OB agreed with. It's somewhat funny because my labor nurse seemed uncomfortable with my decision and would periodically ask if I wanted to keep the monitor on for a while so she could get a baseline on the baby. I declined as I trusted my baby was safe and that my body and baby were made to deliver without the need for intervention, including continuous fetal monitoring. I opted for a HEPLOC over IV as I didn't feel that there was any need to have IV fluids during labor. My hospital had no issue with me drinking throughout my labor. I also felt very confident in declining the standard shot of Pitocin after delivery. Again, her labor nurse seemed somewhat nervous about this too, but my doctor and I were comfortable with the decision. All this to say, thank you for providing information to use your listeners. I'm gonna say that one again. All this to say, thank you for providing information to your listeners in a way that presents the facts and doesn't use scare tactics or treat all pregnant moms the same. I truly do feel I gained confidence from listening to your podcast, which allowed me to advocate for the birth I desired. I delivered my baby naturally without any pain medication. I felt comfortable declining the standard treatment of Pitocin after delivery, erythromycin, hep V vaccine, bathing of baby, etc. I am fortunate to have a doctor who treats birth as a natural process and not an illness. I'm also lucky to have a hospital which supported my decisions without me having to fight for my preferences. Baby and I are healthy without any complications. I credit my birth choices and my easy 
um, for my easy recovery. Birth is such a beautiful experience. There's truly nothing like a physiologic birth the way God designed and nature intended. Thank you for all you do. I will continue to listen to your podcast as I plan to grow my family in the future. So I thought that was great because, you know, we talk a lot about how hard it is to have these this kind of adv- advocacy and support in the hospital. And so it's really wonderful to hear that even with an OB and in the hospital, she still had a really positive experience. Yeah, it's it's a great story. And and yeah, I get I sort of get choked up because we spent so much time or I do spend so much time responding to people about dumb doctor dogma and things that happen in the hospital. Um, and I rail against the system. Um, so finding an individual that will stand up like that is great. So, and by the way, while you were talking, I did look up what NAPRO physician is. It's actually very, very interesting. And it's hey. funny that, that you and I have never heard about it because it's yeah. obviously something we should have heard about, but it's part of the movement for restorative reproductive medicine. And, uh, Natural procreative technology, or NAPRO, is a woman's health science which has as its main principle the ability to work cooperatively with the woman's menstrual and fertility cycle. So it follows something called the Creighton model, which I'm not going to get into, but a NAPRO physicians are usually board certified in OBGYN or family practice who have been trained and certified by the St. Paul VI Institute to offer natural procreative technology to their patients. Okay, so how is it different? Well, much of mainstream women's health and reproductive medicine offers often approaches a woman's fertility through the use of artificial hormones, birth control pills, patch, hormonal IUD implants, and sh- and shot all function and shot all and shot oh, all function to override a woman's natural reproductive ability in order to prevent pregnancy from occurring. They also mask the symptoms of reproductive disorders like polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, premenstrual syndrome, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and various other hormonal imbalances by using all those artificial medications. NAPRO doctors, rather than cover up the symptoms of these underlying disorders, uh, the technology works with a woman's body in order to diagnose and treat the root cause of symptoms like infertility, recurrent miscarriage, heavy periods, painful periods, irregular periods, acne, mood swings, insomnia, depression, anxiety, and on and on it goes. And so then they have for more information. I just I just Googled um, what is a, a NAPRO doctor and it comes up. Great. So, it sounds like a it sounds like a hybrid of a naturopath and a, a physician. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, it's more naturopath than physician. <laughs> <laughs> but they're board certified. Yeah, they, they're doctors who have gone through the medical school thing and gone through all that stuff, but then come out and say, this isn't suiting well for me. Um, I'll, we'll look into it. Maybe we'll even get somebody on as a guest. Sounds like that. Okay. Um, okay. I have one little piece of stupidity here, which I will just read real quickly. And then I have one letter on a sort of a follow-up from something I had said a week or two ago. Um, this is from Twin Mom at... RN underscore Alexandra seven on Instagram. Thank you for reading me back. She sent me something that's posted at her labor and delivery unit where she works as an RN. Okay. All stable infants who weigh at least 2000 grams at birth should receive the first dose of the hepatitis B vaccine within 24 hours of birth. They may follow up with their pediatrician to finish the vaccination schedule. However, 
Infants who weigh less than 2,000 grams should still receive the birth dose, but the birth dose should not be counted towards the vaccination panel schedule. This is considered a bonus dose, quote unquote, indicated for birth weights of less than 2,000 grams. So isn't that special? A baby that weighs less than four pounds, seven ounces, gets to get four doses of hepatitis vaccine instead of three. That's nuts so. Yeah. For those who can't see, Bliss was shaking her head. <laughs> and my mouth has dropped open. That's not so. That's not so. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. You can choose to do that or you can choose not to do that. Which is a reasonable choice. Which one? <laughs> to not do it. Okay. Good. <laughs> I think we're really going to be a bit goofy today, especially when we get into the deep dive on the influenza stuff. But I have a letter here from Katie, who's responding to one of the things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that I brought up about who can get into medical school these days and who can get accepted and what they have to go through to get into medical school and maybe how they have to like have certain views or hold their nose to try to get through um, those eight years of medical school and residency. Um, so she writes, hi, Dr. Stu. I love listening to you and just plain bliss. <laughs> Goddess bliss has sort of disappeared. People, pay attention. Okay. <laughs> my way to pick up my kids from school. You guys, lighthearted humor, oh boy, and sincere compassion makes even the hard topics digestible. Thank you both so much. I have been meaning to write in, into you since you read the email sent in by another listener about the current medical school essay requirements. That's right. That was what it was about. I am currently apprenticing under a traditional independent physiological autonomous midwife, and the rarity of this opportunity in today's world is not lost on me. As licensure continues to flood across the nation, it has been a topic of interest for myself, knowing that I do not want to be licensed, to gauge where the sovereignty of birth is headed at large, as if we already don't know. The complex history of how the medical system relied upon midwives in its origin days before obstetrical obstetrics was a notion to where we are now is a conversation all in itself. The point I would like to draw out relating back to the letter though, is that before OB was its own system, they relied upon the knowledge and practice of midwives who were trained by other midwives and passed knowledge down generation to generation through the art of apprenticeship. What we're seeing now is a complete 180 shift of midwives sitting at the feet of OBs through Boy. state. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you want to sit at the feet of OBs. I love you, Stu. No offense to you, but I don't want to sit at the foot of OBs and learn what they have to teach. Right. She She's yeah. totally with you. She says, you know, uh, through state governing boards and often trying to mirror the medical system that wouldn't have existed without the knowledge from midwives to begin with. While they were once the trainers and educators, they are now merely beggars asking for breadcrumbs, talking about midwives, yep. in comparison to what they should be, quote, allowed, unquote, to freely do. Due to this, we are seeing a shift in midwifery reclaimed through schools like Indie Birth, Matrona, and so many more through apprenticeship. And I would include your Bridge Midwives project in this as well. Thank you. It is my hope that this continues to gain traction and become normalized within our society at large once again. 
Midwifery, though, is not the only practice rooted in the history of apprenticeship. Our medical history proves the importance of this concept as well, relying on it steadily until prominent families like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies implemented the universities and medical schools to monopolize and profit from the industry. Because prior to that, doctors learned by the apprentice model as well. They were controlling the education, controlling the licensure and the scope of practice. Scope of practice and educational standards aren't harmful in their own right, but when we see the education system being controlled by one thought process only frame of mind and lack of room for critical thinking, we are setting ourselves up for the inevitable disaster. I am in agreement with everything you expressed regarding the danger of only allowing someone who thinks a certain way into medical school or any educational body for that matter. Given that this is where our medical industry continues to go and that doctors share the same apprenticeship-based roots that midwives once did, do you ever foresee there coming a point in time where doctors and students say enough is enough and return back to an apprenticeship model of education for going licensure altogether? Do students try to lie their way through applications and keep their heads down through medical school just trying to make it through? I would love to hear your thoughts on how we move forward from here. It's not clear what it's clear what we are doing and where we are headed is not working. That's from Katie. So you have thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the same thoughts I've said a million trillion times, but um, the, the solution that I see is bringing traditional midwifery back um, and allowing that to be an option in every state. Um, so that we have the ability for people to be able to choose traditional midwifery if that's what they want. And for midwives to take care of low risk, healthy moms and to utilize doctors, hospitals and um, yeah, doctors and hospitals, surgery, medicine when it's appropriate or when a woman decides that's what she wants. But to be able to shift back to that, I think would um, bring more satisfaction, better entry for babies, and a lot lower um, statistics of um, maternal deaths, C-sections, breastfeeding, depression. Um, there's we, The list goes on and on. So that is my solution, and that's what I've devoted my life to. And Katie, as far as your question regarding it happening in the medical profession, obviously it's not going to happen in the near future. However, that's because it's not bad enough yet. At some point, society will make a change when it's bad enough. The question is, how will we decide that? I don't know where that will come. But the women out there who are having babies will have, make, have to make that decision, that it's now bad enough that I'm not going to support that system anymore and I'm going to deliver a, unassisted at home or I'm going to have an, a, a doctor uh, who's been apprenticed through midwifery or whoever, whatever else be at my birth and some people are going to go to jail and then there'll be legislative change um, or or we'll just become lawless, which may very well happen <laughs> in the near future with all the chaos that's going on in the world right now. Um, so it's not going to happen suddenly and it's not going to happen through the organizations that already exist because they exist to support themselves. And they will never undermine. They will never do something that will undermine the authority unless they can get authority in the new system. Then they might make a change. So we have to figure it out how we can manipulate their minds to get them to do that. Okay. But thank you for writing in for that because it it it's it, you're right. The apprentice model is actually a better model 
And when you think about what the Rockefellers and Carnegies did, they didn't do it for the benefit of women in the United States. They did it for themselves and they did it for the control and the money that it could make them. Right. And the, the products that they would have to sell them then to the hospitals because they had a monopoly on a lot of the products and things like that. That sounds you know, a little like Bill Gates. Just a little? Yeah. <laughs> you know, history repeats itself, right? Because people don't study history and people don't stand up for it. Everybody, you know, we don't live long enough, I think. I think the fact that we live 70 or 80 years, maybe a little longer sometimes, maybe a little less sometimes, isn't enough time to incorporate the wisdom. And so we have, and then we have an education system that propagates this sort of thing. So we we don't learn from history. We're destined yeah. to. Right. And we also don't honor our elders. That's part of our culture too, is that we take our elders and kind of push them off to the side. So that's also part of the program, the um, project that I'm doing is to really honor that when you have lived a long time, you you may not understand the new technology and some of the ways that culture is changing and that's fine, but we still have perspective of um, things that at least could be integrated into the conversation. Yeah, we should be able to recognize the wisdom in our elders. Um, there are some elders that really should be pushed off to the side. But <laughs> I think we all know who we're talking about here. Uh, but that let's move on. Bliss, what is Element? L-M-N-T. It's an amazing sponsor, first of all. We love them so much. But it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like... Us. That's right. <laughs> I taught you well. <laughs> it is. It, it's got a lot of uh, good salts in it and uh, no sugar. I even uh, took a little notes here and they have um, a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium, which helps maintain fluid balance, regulates your blood pressure and supports muscle function, mood and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your, in your birth bag if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue, and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we, before what I used to do it, but you still do. <laughs> you have a lot <laughs> of sleep after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes. And I carry it with me whenever I travel and I add it to my water, like in the hotel room and stuff. And I spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms. It's a great sponsor and they've, They've been doing really well, and I'm really proud to be um, supporting them. They have multiple flavors. Your favorite uh, is raspberry, right? Raspberry is mine, and yours is mango yeah. chili. But I, I do have I do have some sad news. Aww. So long, old friend, to Lemon Habanero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff too. But I trust <laughs> Elements. I trust that the, uh, they've done a deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to Drink Element, that's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, all one word. And when you do that, you'll get a free sample pack with your every order. Go do it. Go do it. So okay. Bliss, Bliss, yeah. yeah. what's the difference between a cold and the flu? <laughs> Uh, gosh, Stu, 
Uh, okay. Well, I have an answer for you. So I won't put you on the spot because, because yeah. a lot of people don't know. And even those who know, can't you know, always remember like you? Cause I know, you know, but you, you, I think, I think stomach, it's more having to do with stomach stuff too, right? No, not, uh -uh. Not, no, not necessarily. Okay. okay. So this is from the, that reliable source, the center for disease control. But when it comes to definitions, I can, I can live with some of the things that they say. You'll see, I don't agree with some of the things that they say coming up in a minute, but what is the difference between cold and a flu? Um, influenza or the flu and the common cold are both contagious respiratory illnesses, but they are caused by different viruses. Flu is caused by influenza viruses only, whereas the common cold can be caused by a number of different viruses, including rhinoviruses, parainfluenza viruses, and seasonal coronaviruses. Seasonal coronaviruses should not be confused with the SARS-CoV-2. Okay, that's important because it's important to know that some coronaviruses are natural in origin and others <laughs> were produced in a lab through gain-of-function research. But that's not what we're talking about today. Because flu and the common cold have similar symptoms, it can be difficult to tell the difference between them based on symptoms alone. But in general... Flu is worse than the common cold, and symptoms are typically more intense and begin more abruptly. Colds are usually milder than the flu. So let's talk about a couple of symptoms here that, that you may have. One is symptom onset. So colds, it's more gradual. Flu, you don't feel good within like hours. You start to feel really crappy. Fever, far more common in the flu than with a cold. Aches, far more common with the flu than with a cold. Chills, fairly common with the flu, uncommon with the cold. Fatigue and weakness, often with the flu, not so often with the cold. Chest discomfort and cough, it's mild to moderate in both. It's common in both. Stuffy nose, much more common in colds than flu. Sore throat, more common in colds than flu. And headaches, more common in flu than cold. Yeah. So, because cold and flu share many symptoms, it can be difficult or even impossible to tell them apart. So these are just some guidelines that people can use to talk, to figure that out because they're treated often differently. Colds are often treated with over-the-counter remedies and just some time. Flu is also treated that way, but flu that becomes significant or getting worse, um, there are antivirals, like um, the common ones are Tamiflu. I forgot the other name, I'll know it in a minute of the, the kind that are used for the flu. And some people would suggest that these are good medications to take if you have a case of the flu that's getting worse. And other people would say, stay away from all the pharmaceutical products because they're very skeptical of anything that big pharma makes these days. So this is, this is not going to be a talk on what you should or shouldn't do when you get the flu. You got a question? Nope. Oh, made like I have a question face. Yes. <laughs> Okay. All right. So I went to the CDC to start, then I went to ACOG, and then I went and did some research, and then I went to the package insert for the flu vaccine. So let's 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 start with the CDC. Um promotional stuff, propaganda stuff on their website starts out with pregnant with a question mark. You need a flu shot. Doesn't say you might want to consider one, it says you need one. So they start out, and I just want people to listen to the language we're listening. 
And by the way, it's really interesting. ACOG's guideline is from 2018, and they use pregnant woman constantly. Everything in the CDC or ACOG now says pregnant people. So if I use the term pregnant people, I'm only reading what the CDC has said. I want to make that very clear that that would not be a term that I would normally use, but I don't want to paraphrase for them. All right. Information for pregnant people. Flu can be a serious illness, especially when you are pregnant. Getting flu can cause serious problems when you are pregnant. Pregnant people and up to and people up to two weeks postpartum who get the flu are at higher risk of developing serious illness, including being hospitalized. Now, question is, that's repeated as a mantra everywhere that pregnant women can get uh get when they get the flu, they can get sicker. They always they told you that with COVID too. Yeah. Our, supposedly our, it were it. Pregnancy is immune compromised, immune suppressed. Yeah, but the problem is, is that the data coming out with COVID now is actually showing theoretically that that pregnant women were in were were less likely to be sick and hospitalized. Now, the data with the flu does show that women were more likely to be hospitalized, but that data, which I'll dig into in a second, mostly comes from papers that were put, printed out in 2009 and 2010. What happened in 2009 and 2010? What was the strain of the flu? The flu was the H1N1, which was much more significantly virulent than the average yearly flu. And so all these organizations that say that the flu is more likely to be cause hospitalization and even more mortality in women are basing it on studies about a flu that isn't around anymore. Yeah. And, and they carry it on because they're using language. We all have our biases, but they're using language to funnel you down a path toward their end, end goal. And the end goal of the CDC is what? To take the flu vaccine. Yeah. So can you, are you going to talk about, and can you explain to me? Um, I mean, I get it in, in elderly people. The, 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 you know, the flu can really be something that can be really serious, but can you help me understand um, what happens that someone would need to be hospitalized? Because from my upbringing and from my experience, just living, um, the flu is not something to worry about like that. Well, this is another trick with the numbers, Bliss. They say that there's a higher risk of being hospitalized if you're pregnant with the flu. But we know what that means. It means nothing. But what would you be hospitalized for is oh, my pneumonia. specific question. Pneumonia. Okay. Yeah, mainly pneumonia. So pregnant women are more susceptible to pneumonia? It doesn't. Well, make, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Doesn't make sense to me either. And that's why <laughs> it follows the Dr. Stu rule that if studies don't tell you or don't confirm what common sense would tell you, you really need to be skeptical about the studies. Yeah. And that's why I'm looking through and because they, all these people, ACOG, the same thing, they all say, uh, you know, higher rate of hospitalization and some say higher rate of mor mortality. And I'm looking everywhere and I can't find, you know, they give a reference, but the references are all from 2009 and 2010, which was the H1N1 flu, swine flu epidemic type thing. Mm -hmm. By the way, they gave a vaccine for that, which they pulled off the market. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay. So moving on, 
When you get the flu shot, your body starts to make antibodies that help protect you against the flu. That's probably true. Okay. I mean, I'm going to, when, when truth is there, I'm going to say it. This is important because babies younger than six months are too young to get a flu vaccine. If you breastfeed your infant, antibodies can also be passed through the breast milk. Yes. But isn't, it, isn't it interesting that antibodies can pass through the breast milk, but spike protein can't pass through the breast milk? That's yes. What we, That's what we were told. Told that, right. Mm-hmm. But you can give immunity to your baby through the breast milk. Now, are antibodies smaller molecules in spike protein? I don't know. But we all know now that that's not true, that spike protein passes through the breast milk. Yeah. And for those of you who maybe don't know, your body at breastfeeding mom actually picks up the viruses and the bacteria that are present between you and the baby and on your skin and in your environment. And it adapts and changes the breast milk to help with the immunity. Right. So even even may pick up stuff that's in the baby's saliva. Yeah. And respond to that. Right. Yeah. So it's always better, you know, sometimes we pump and give breast milk from a bottle, but when we're dealing with um, viruses and stuff in the house, it's always better to, to um, feed from the breast so that your body can do what it's meant to do. Flu shots are safe for people who are pregnant or breastfeeding. Flu shots have an excellent safety record, according to the CDC. But I would add, yes, an excellent safety record, but no testing for safety. Yeah. And you haven't mentioned yet that, you know, in my research um, in regards to the flu shot, it's wildly ineffective. So maybe when you get it, it's giving you immunity from towards the flu, but it the virus changes so much every season that they say that the efficacy is like some somewhere around 16% given what season we're talking about. So. Yeah. It can be as low as that, as that that's, that's documented. Yeah. All right. So if you have flu symptoms, call your doctor immediately. And I would like to just make a comment about that statement. Okay. Um, most likely I would say, call your doctor in the morning. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't call your doctor immediately if it's two o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. unless you're really, really, really sick, but not if you just have flu symptoms. And I give you, I give you an example of that. I still remember when I used to cover my partners and I was on call, for them and I, I would get calls from their clients. I had no idea who they were. And one time I got a call at like two o'clock in the morning. I was sound asleep, but I get a call from a woman telling me that she found a breast lump. Wow. And I said to her, I said, Well, that you know, why don't we come when she comes to the office in the morning? We'll take that up. But can I just ask why you called me now? And she said, Because the pamphlet said if I find a breast lump, I'm supposed to call my doctor immediately. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, no common sense. <laughs> well, they're very literal. And I'm just, I want to make sure that, you know, if you're, if you can't breathe, yeah, call your doctor in the middle of the night and they're just going to tell you to go to urgent care anyway. But, but, um, uh, but if it's just, you have questions for your doctor, try to, you know, or your midwife, you know, nine to five is a good time to call. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, doctors can prescribe influenza antiviral medicine to treat flu. And sometimes that's important. Uh, we talked about this fever is often a symptom of flu and the CDC says acetaminophen or Tylenol can reduce fever. By the way, this is a brochure for pregnant women. Mm-hmm. So we did a whole podcast number 257 with Jen Margulis on toxins and other 
tyrannies or whatever. I can't remember what it was called, but it had the word toxin in it. And you go back to podcast 257 because Jen has a strong position on Tylenol being something that should actually not even be on the shelf anymore for anybody, let alone pregnant women or children should not be taking it. Okay. Right. And if you have a fever, if your body is actually fighting the virus, it's actually a good thing to, to let your children and you have fevers to fight the virus. However, in the first trimester of pregnancy, um, a high fever can be problematic for the development of the baby. So we need to pay close attention to high fevers during that time. But other times in pregnancy, um, depending on how high, obviously you don't want to get a temperature of like 104 and not not do something about it. But having a having a fever is actually your body's way of fighting the virus. Yeah, I mean, if it gets exceptionally high while you're pregnant, that's probably not very good, and so you want to bring it down. But there are other ways to bring it down, and I would not, I would ag- agree that Tylenol is not the way to do it. Again, another disagreement between us and the CDC. Right. Uh, more disagreements between the CDC and me, and probably you as well, are the CDC also has another uh, handout for pregnant, or not for, for pregnant women, that says vaccines in pregnancy, nine things you need to know. So one, you aren't just protecting yourself. Vaccines during pregnancy give your baby some early protection too. Listen to the language, by the way. In each one of these things, the language is so sweet and and skewing you toward the idea about safety and safety this and safety. Remember, the welfare of humanity is always the alibi of tyrants. And that, that safety can be something that's very valuable, but it can also be a tool to manipulate us. Yes. And they that, that skewing you toward a, a desired endpoint of the CDC. You know, we all do this. Obviously, you and I are skewing our language often to get people to, you know, trust their bodies and think, pregnancy is normal, but, but, uh, we, but everyone does it, but at least we admit that we're doing it. Number two, flu, Tdap, RSV, and COVID-19 vaccination while pregnant can help keep you and your little ones safe. And I wrote, despite no safety studies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, dissecting the CDC guidelines and stuff like that is just, in ACOG too, it's just too easy for me at, these, at this point. Yeah, it's not yeah. a challenge anymore. Yeah. Vaccines like medicine can have side effects, but most people who get vaccinated have mild or no side effects. Okay. While true, even the COVID-19 vaccine, apparently the side effect profile is about one in every 800 uh, people who got the shot. But I just want people to understand that the swine flu vaccine, which they tried to bring out in 2009 or or 10 or whenever they had that H1N1 thing, was stopped because the the side effect profile was greater than one in 100,000, maybe even one in a million. And they stopped that vaccine. But here's the COVID vaccine that has a side effect profile of at least one in 800. And they're still pushing it. And they're pushing it on pregnant and uh, babies at six months of age. Uh, three, I'm going off I'm going off flu topic here for just a second. The Tdap vaccine helps protect against whooping cough, which can be really dangerous for your baby. Just like the wording, right? Yes, it can be really dangerous, but what does really dangerous, what's the actual risk of it being really dangerous? They don't tell you. Um, You need a Tdap vaccine during your pregnancy with optimal timing between the 27th and 36th week of each pregnancy. So we talked about this before when we've talked about the Tdap, that you have a baby this year, you get a Tdap vaccine, you have a baby next year, they, they want you to have another one. 
Whereas if you weren't pregnant, you wouldn't be getting a Tdap vaccine either ever or maybe once every 10 years. But for some reason, you're going to give that, which has, by the way, extra uh, aluminum in it. And you're giving it to a woman more often. Um, getting a flu vaccine while pregnant can help you protect you and your baby against flu. Pregnancy increases the risk of hospitalization with the flu. There's that thing again. They keep repeating that. But I can never find out where they actually get that information other than that one year, which was a, a, an aberrant year. So they're cherry picking their data. Um, getting an RSV vaccine during your pregnancy can help protect your baby. And we talked about this on podcast 330. I think it's the one that just came out. Um, so people can look at that. I'm not going to dive into that because I really want to get back to flu in a second. Number six, getting COVID vaccine. Well, this is all from the CDC. Remember, this is the CDC, the nine things that pregnant women should know. Getting his COVID vaccine while pregnant can help protect you and your baby from getting very sick from COVID. Do I have to say anything to that? No. No. <laughs> that's, that's at best a lie. At worst, it's malfeasance and, and, and malevolence. It says, if you are pregnant or were recently pregnant, you are more likely to get very sick from COVID-19 than people who are not pregnant. That, I think, has been debunked. Because, again, they had no studies on this. So, And if they have any studies at this point, they can't be very good. But there's data out of some other countries that say that actually pregnant women fared better. And that may be, that may be because their immune system is slightly suppressed. They don't react so terribly to the COVID-19 vaccine, maybe, who knows? Number seven, timing of vaccinations is everything. Flu season vary in their timing from season to season. For most people, the CDC recommends getting the flu vaccine in September or October to ensure that they are protected before flu activity begins to increase. Early vaccination during July and August can also be considered for people who are in their third trimester of pregnancy during those months. So in other words, get that vaccine in there before your baby is born to give your baby the benefit of your antibodies that you created toward the flu. That's the CDC's position, right? But that's, there's still, there's no safety studies on that. None. And I'll get into that in detail of how they did the safety study when I get into the package insert on, on the flu vaccine. Are you excited about that? Yeah, actually I am. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure people know you're still here. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> and there I go. <laughs> so you feel safe for bliss. You could get your updated COVID-19 vaccine at any point in pregnancy. Well, I won't be pregnant or getting a vaccine, but thank you so much. <laughs> here's, one, here's a big one that, that drives me really crazy as, as if those other ones didn't. Number eight, anyone who is around your baby needs vaccines too. Yeah, this is a very common one um, that people ask about. They say older kids and adults can spread viruses to babies even if they don't feel sick. And of course, I wrote down, so can vaccinated people. <laughs> True. Okay. So anyone who needs vaccines should get them at least two weeks before meeting the baby because it takes about two weeks to develop antibodies after vaccination. Now, I would tell you this, that you're feel, anybody listening, feel free to, to do this. If you choose to do it, if your daughter or son or whatever wants you to do it, 
you can have that conversation with them or you can go ahead and do it. You have to weigh the risks and benefits to yourself and uh, versus the risks and benefits of not seeing your grandchild. So <laughs> your opinion, I'm just telling you that um, there's that this is, this, this is a crazy thing because the vaccines, especially the COVID one doesn't prevent uh, transmission in any way, shape or form. And, he, and, and once you've had, say you had the flu and you're recovered from it and then your daughter has a baby. Are you going to have to be vaccinated now to go see the baby or is natural immunity good enough or is it not good enough? Yeah, it, it changes all the time with the flu and cold. So I don't, I just don't, it's kind of crazy to me that we've come to this in our society that a cold or flu, you know, obviously if you're sick, you're not going to go visit your grandbaby. Right. But, um, not, you, you, you don't, transmit the flu or cold without symptoms well right? you might you might you might i mean it's you know it's the way that usually transmits is out in the public people don't know they have it they may be shedding before they're actually even sick especially with a cold because colds come on slowly so you don't even know that but yeah you can uh, there are asymptomatic shedders and people who are vaccinated are probably more likely to be an asymptomatic shedder um so yeah it can you can do that but Again, people have to decide what's important in life. I mean, before this recommendation came out, were babies dropping dead because grandma came over? It's I wild. See Bliss's face, you guys. It's uh, wild. I get to see your face. And lastly, number nine, and we could have covered this already. If you get pregnant again, you'll need a Tdap vaccine with each pregnancy. So even if your babies are close in age. Because we want to be sure to we increase that aluminum exposure for you, for you and your babies. Okay. All right. So, what is it? Maybe we should take a break right here. Yeah. <laughs> and break for one of our great sponsors, and then we'll be right back. So, Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? <laughs> what is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control? Because so much is out of our control. Uh, her nutrition. That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as needed because they have focused on pregnancy postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. And it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall and we need a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah, Needed has an immune support, uh, which is a popular choice right now with all the back to school germs and heading into the winter when we all tend to get sick more frequently and the people ask sometimes, well, if I'm pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy or is intended to complement, not replace other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your, you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your, maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic, 
And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> and the preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's men fertility plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which, by the way, are falling worldwide. So you can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Needed designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code birthinginstincts for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. Okay, we're back. (laughs) I was cueing her. We're back. We are back. And we're going to do what, let's see what ACOG has to say about the assessment and treatment of pregnant women with suspected or confirmed influenza. Right. So this is not about catching it or not. This is a a pregnant woman who already has the flu. What should you do? Right. This is good. This is good information. I love the fact that this is from 2018. This is ACOG committee opinion number 753. And they use the term pregnant women. So that's really good. Okay. So I want you to listen to the second sentence here, Bliss, because it will basically tells you everything you know about how organized medicine sees pregnancy. Don't even have to take my word for it. They spell it out. The first sentence is pregnant and postpartum women are at high risk. High risk meaning what? We don't know. Of serious complications of seasonal and pandemic influenza infection. Pregnancy itself is a high risk condition. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) That's, it's telling you, it's in print. The whole sentence goes like this. Pregnancy itself is a high risk condition making the potential adverse effects of influenza particularly serious in pregnant women. So this is how the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology is looking at women who are pregnant. Just by the fact that you're pregnant, you are high risk. Not that you're a high risk. They're not saying you're higher risk for getting influenza. They are saying you pregnancy itself is a high risk condition. Right. I'm thinking maybe that should be the title of this podcast, but I don't know if yet. We'll see. All right. Antiviral treatment is necessary for all pregnant women with suspected or confirmed influenza, regardless of vaccination status. I would disagree with that statement. Um, I don't know that antiviral uh, medicine is necessary for all pregnant women who get the flu, but certainly people that aren't doing well or are getting sick. It's certainly a viable option. Right. And I did take a dive into... Um, uh, Tamiflu and Relenza, which are the two most common prescription remedies for the flu. They're called, I can't pronounce them, Oseltamivir and Zanamivir. And uh, I looked in the um, uh, information about them and they are limited. There's limited human data, but it's considered safe. So there is some human data on it. It's limited, but it's considered safe. Um, 
So when would you recommend, Stu, that someone utilize this medication if they are pregnant and have the flu? Me personally? Um, sure. Yeah, you personally. Yeah, I, I would base it on how they sound, how long it's been lingering, how they're feeling. You can, you know, if you talk to them, and by the way, the recommendation for people with the flu is to talk to your doctor on the phone or by Zoom and not come to the office. And that makes sense because if you have the flu, you don't want to be affecting the waiting room. But right. um, but you can you can tell if you've got decent clinical judgment, you can tell if a person isn't doing well, they're pale, if they're breathing harder, if that they, they should probably get on medication. And ideally, you want to get them on medication within the first 48 hours. But even if it's beyond 48 hours, um, if they finally call you at that point, it, it, the medication still has some efficacy. So I'm not against this, this medication. I've taken Tamiflu myself, you know, many times back when I used to live in Westlake. So that was, you know, up until 2014. So before 2014, um, I would, I used Tamiflu. I think I'd even taken Relenza too. I think Relenza comes in a little wheel. Uh, if I remember it correctly. And I've never, I've never, ever, ever taken anything or given anything to my children except for just normal support for their system for the flu. I've never yeah, and they say, and they say because of the, right. And they say, but because of the high potential of morbidity and more and mortality, and I'll get into that mortality word that, that ACOG is suggesting exists for women with the pregnant women with the flu the data doesn't support that, but I but there are papers that say that, but they're all, again, around from, not all of them, but the, most of them are from the 2009-2010 swine flu epidemic season of H1N1, which was, by every means, a combination of viruses that was really bad, and it's not the norm. But they say the Center for Disease Control and Prevention advises that post-exposure antiviral chemoprophylaxis, which means, and it's a long way of saying taking medicine <laughs> can be considered for pregnant women and women who are up to two weeks postpartum who have had a close contact with infected individuals. So they're even suggesting that if you have exposure that you should get on Tamiflu or Relenza. And um, again, that's their take. I don't think that most of our listeners would agree with that. I don't know that the data actually supports it. Sometimes fishing through this data, even with my sort of idiot savant math brain, it's very, very difficult to interpret uh, the data. The, the charts and graphs are very complicated. So I just filter these things out. It's not a substitute for you doing your research, but I read them so that most of you don't have to try to read these papers. Right. And it sounds like that as a, you know, if you were feeling a little bit more conservative and you were exposed to the flu, taking that sounds actually better and safer than doing a vaccine. Correct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as look at preventing it is always better. So how do you prevent getting the flu? Well, exercise, vitamin D, zinc, quercetin, sunlight, happiness. Those are nice things to do. Avoid places where there's sick people or common exposure, maybe crowded places during flu season when you're pregnant. I mean, but you don't have to live the life of a hermit. Yeah. And you, and you don't need it necessary. I mean, again, I am concerned about these vaccines and we'll get to, when I get to the package insert, I'll tell you more about why I'm concerned about these vaccines. Okay. 
So here's some background. Pregnant, and again, listen to the language that they use. Pregnant and postpartum women are at a high risk of serious complications and of seasonal and pandemic influenza. Pregnancy itself is a high-risk condition, making the potential adverse, oh, we've already read that, adverse effects of influenza particularly serious in pregnant women. So you hear the words serious complications, serious, high-risk. In two sentences, they said it four times. <laughs> right, right. So, but they never give a reference in any of these papers. The CDC doesn't give a reference either. Mm-hmm. They don't give a real reference as to why they're saying that it's high risk for women and and they don't define what high risk is. And even the paper that I looked at from the H1N1 years didn't, it, it showed an, uh, uh, a real, a relative risk rise, but it didn't tell you what the actual risks were. I couldn't find any numbers. So that always makes me suspect when they don't put the numbers in. Complications of flu include preterm delivery, pneumonia, hospital or intensive care admission and maternal and fetal death. All right. Um, I guess that's, you know, that's true because there are people that have died of the flu. But again, it's it's the language that they're using. Um, and again, much of that death data comes from that H1N1 year. Influenza vaccination rates during pregnancy have plateaued with only about 50% of pregnant women receiving influenza vaccine. And to date, efforts to increase rates of vaccination have not been successful. Now, this was in 2018. I got to believe they're less successful now. Just just a guess. What do you mm-hmm. think? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know because that's not really my population. People yeah, who I'm would have to do it. More vaccine skepticism now because of what they did with the COVID stuff that now all vaccines are being questioned by, a lot, uh, by more people. Yeah. And rightful and rightfully so. Seasonal influenza vaccination effectiveness in pregnant women is similar to its efficacy among the general adult population and varies from season to season. And I looked that up and I could find variations from 16 to 60 some percent, about 64 percent. So there are some years where it's less than 20 percent effective. OBGYNs and other obstetric care providers should promptly recognize the symptoms of influenza adequately assess severity and readily prescribe safe and effective antiviral treatment for pregnant women with suspected or confirmed influenza. So that's not real different than what I said. They wanted you to give it to any woman you think that has the flu. I'm not sure again of the overuse of things like Tamiflu and Relenza could lead to the same problems that overuse of antibiotics has led to, which is, would be viral resistance to these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But I more cautious than what ACOG is suggesting there. That's just my opinion. Uh, pregnant women with suspected influenza should be assessed based on a variety of symptoms, including but not limited to fever of at least 100 degrees. We usually say 100.4. Uh, cough, fatigue, headache, headache, and body aches. However, the absence of fever should not rule out the diagnosis of influenza. And then say pregnant women who cannot maintain oral fluid intake show signs of dehydration are experiencing difficulty breathing or pain in the chest. Again, these are things you can assess just by talking to them or exhibit any signs of obstetrical complications, such as I suppose preterm labor are considered moderate or high risk and should be referred immediately to an emergency department or equivalent setting. That makes sense. Yes, it does. Okay. Uh, just a couple more things on this one. 
clinical judgment, obstetrics and gynecologists and other obstetrical pr providers should not rely on test results to initiate treatment. So in other words, you shouldn't just, you shouldn't wait to treat by waiting for the PCR swab for influenza to come back from a lab. Right. They think they have the flu and, and they seem relatively sick, then giving them treatment and along with giving them prescriptions is also the suggestions we talked about earlier. Pound the vitamin D, pound the vitamin C, you know, pound quercetin, pound the zinc, do these other things that can help you. You, you, gotta, you also want to eat well, eat clean, don't eat processed foods, don't eat sugar, <clears throat> have lots of garlic, lots of ginger, bone broth, fresh green juice. You know, it's just, I, I heard something recently, Stu, that the combination of the holidays and people not eating very well, not drinking well, having lots of sugar and stuff through the holidays could also be one of the reasons why um, cold and flus surge during that time um, because we're not taking very good care of ourselves. Yeah. And people don't exercise as much. Indoors more. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. You know, when the weather is crappy, people, you know, and most people can't afford a gym. So they don't go to the gym. And even if people who have gym memberships don't go to the gym after about the first, I think that's a pretty well-known fact. Okay. So I, I took a, um, so I, I took a look at uh, several papers, but I picked one in particular, and this is from a journal called vaccine in 2017. And I'm wondering, so where does the term high risk of hospitalization mortality in pregnant women in all these things I was reading to you from ACOG and the CDC come from? So where do they come from? So I, I, I wanted to do a little research because just because it's something is said over and over again, doesn't make it true. It, it, it's that long habit of not thinking something wrong, giving it the superficial appearance of being right thing that we talk about all the time. And we just do things because that's what we've always done. And we think it's right. Like, right. Like 70% of doctors prefer Winston's. <laughs> and not then, anymore. Yeah. And then they finally, somebody took a look and finally figured it out. Okay, so this is a systemic, this is called Pregnancy as a Risk Factor for Severe Outcomes from Influenza Virus Infection, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis of Observational Studies. So a systemic review and meta-analysis of observational studies is low to moderate evidence, but it's the best evidence that's out there, unfortunately, because there is no, nobody's doing randomized, controlled, blinded studies. So Studies were re reported on outcomes in pregnant women with influenza in comparison to non-pregnant women with influenza. So they took similar cohorts of age group, and they took women who were pregnant and women who weren't pregnant. Outcomes included community-acquired pneumonia, hospitalization, admission to intensive care unit, ventilatory support, ventilatory support, and death. Okay. Um, most of the studies were conducted during the 2009 influenza A H1N1 pandemic, which was an outlier year, but yet that's where most of the studies come from. Despite that, it's interesting because they found a higher rate risk for hospitalization in pregnant versus non-pregnant patients afflicted with in influenza. Odds ratio was 2.44. So it was 2.44 times higher rate of hospitalization in pregnant women with influenza than non-pregnant cohorts with influenza. But 2.44 times what number are we talking about? And, yeah, that's and, the do you, and do you think that some of that has to do with this um, 
perceived belief that pregnant women are also more susceptible to that. So they they're being sent to the hospital that. more because of that. They actually talk about that. So yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. That's really, I love when you come up with these things because it, I love your mind. I just love that. Um, but it did not find any significant difference in mortality. Now, this was in, again, most of these papers were, or not most, but a large percentage of these papers were in that really bad year. And yet they found no increase in mortality. The odds ratio was 1.04, which was not statistically significant. So the fact that when, when the CDC or ACOG says there's increased rates of mortality in pregnant women with influenza, where are they getting their data? Hospitalization, yes, from this paper and other papers, but I didn't find, I mean, again, I didn't research, I didn't do, I don't have the time to do a literal, literal, literal research of all the, of all the literature, the literal research of all the literature. Okay. Um, conclusions. We found that influenza during pregnancy resulted in a higher risk of hospital admission than influenza infection in non-pregnant individuals but that the risk of mortality following influenza was similar in both pregnant and non-pregnant individuals. Um, okay, so let's take a look a little bit of a deeper dive. Um, it is estimated that three to five million cases of severe influenza occur annually worldwide. I mean, there's lots, there's millions more than that, but three to five million severe influenza and the results in 250,000 to 500,000 deaths worldwide. That's an interesting number. And I, I did the math on that. And that's 5 to 16.7% of people. This is people, not just pregnant people, pregnant women, who get severe influenza will die worldwide. Um, I don't know what it is in Western countries. I don't know if it's worse in Asia or if it's worse in Africa or worse, worse in whatever or better. It might be better for all I know. Um, but you know, five to 16.7% mortality seems high, but let's remember that's not people who have the flu. That's people who have severe influenza. Okay. So I'm assuming that those are people that should or, or have been hospitalized. Um, again, these studies, again, were done in the years just after H1N1, the WHO put out a recommendation in 2012, but this paper that was written that I'm going from was written in 2016 says that. Influenza disease risk posed to pregnant women has never been comprehensively addressed in a systemic review. So again, the WHA puts out this recommendation for pregnant women with no data. Yeah. No data based on an aberrant year. It's just one of those things that just kind of drives me crazy. So Bliss, we have a not new sponsor, Birthfit. <laughs> They've been with us for a while now, so we can't call them new anymore. But they do have some exciting new news as BirthFit has its newest member as our friend Lindsay ha had her baby. So congratulations, Lindsay and family. Yay! Yeah, BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum. Tell us a little bit about their programs. You know what? They cover you for all aspects of feminine care and birth and postpartum. It's really amazing. So the BirthFit Basics is a prenatal program. is 30 days, no equipment necessary for any trimester of pregnancy. So you could try that out before you jump in further. And then they have a prenatal training program, which is full strength, conditioning, 
that requires minimal equipment like dumbbells, bands, and a box. I had a client the other day who was laying in bed like a good client um, taking my suggestion. She's like, you know, just laying in bed nursing all day. I'm feeling a little sore. You know any stretches? And I said, you should really try this lying in program that they have. It's great for postpartum. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focuses on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum through breathing exercises, visualization, and belly massages. I mean, come on, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. And then, yeah, and then they have um, kind of an intermediate birth fit basics, which requires no um, equipment. So that focuses on foundational breath work and movements to reestablish a solid foundation of core and pelvic floor stability before you go back to any other fitness classes. But they also have a more extensive postpartum program, which is 12 weeks focused on building a base level of general fitness through simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. Yeah, the birth community is where you want to be if you're trying to conceive or know you want to be in the next one to three years. This is a monthly membership program by Women for Women that focuses on general strength and conditioning with respect around one's menstrual cycle. So go to birthfit.com and use the code instincts1, that's the number one, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program or go to birthfit.com, use the code instincts2 to get a discount on the basics postpartum program. We love BirthFit. It's OB and midwife approved. Absolutely. And go check out Lindsay. I mean, she looks great. And she did her own fitness program throughout her whole pregnancy and had an amazing birth. So check it out. Okay. So let's uh, move along here to the discussion section, and then we'll just get to the package insert and we'll wrap up because I know we, we're, we're getting long here. You can see that. Like, that's why the beauty of visual communication is great. <laughs> um, I'm just going to skip down and read the conclusion again. We found that pregnant women are at an increased risk for hospitalization, but we did not find an increase in risk of death or other severe outcomes. Uh, the higher rate of hospitalization supports vaccination for pregnant women, although whether the cause for hospitalization was due to severity of illness versus preemptive admission is unclear. This is where you got into, and I skipped that part, Bliss, where I said there probably was a bias in physicians putting pregnant women into the hospital, which is what you said. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, influenza vaccines have been found to be safe and effective at preventing influenza virus infection in pregnant women and their newborn children. They list two studies, which I have not reviewed to, to make that statement. But in the medical industrial complex, the default is always to trust the vaccines. Right. And I don't know that it's safe and effective because it's never been tested against a randomized placebo-controlled saline trial. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the package insert, and we'll finish with that because this is for flu, flu zone quadrivalent, which I think is the most common vaccine used these days for people under 65. And they have, it's interesting that for children at age six months to age 35 months, they recommend two doses. But for people nine years of age and older, they recommend one dose. I don't understand that. That was similar to what you just said about the small babies. Like why, why would you give them more? Uh, their assumption I'm assuming is that their immune systems don't respond as vigorously, but I would think that their immune systems are probably pretty yeah. strong, especially by yeah. a two years of age or three years of age. 
Weird. Uh, anyway, they come up with these things. Is there a reason why they do it? I don't know, but they don't ever explain it. And if they don't explain it, then to me, it doesn't, it doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> um, adults. Adults 18 years of age or older received one dose of either fluzone quadrivalent, which is the one we're talking about, or one of two formulations of comparative trivalent influenza vaccine. So in other words, the study on adults was done comparing the fluzone vaccine with two older flu vaccines and not with a placebo. And people know this by now. I mean, if you listen to the podcast, you know that no vaccine on the vaccine schedule has ever been tested against a randomized, double-blinded, controlled saline-type study. And I just, I just and, and, and they found amazingly that the symptoms were pretty similar between a flu vaccine and a flu vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> they, they analyzed 570 recipients aged 18 to 60. And the... Uh, you know, I'm not going to go through this, the um, the summary. It's all there if you want to find it online. And we'll put the well, I'll put the link up on the show notes. Um, but it's similar to other vaccines, which were never tested against placebo either. So, are you are our listeners? Are you seeing the pattern here? I mean, you you have to be. <laughs> <laughs> what about risk in pregnancy for the flu vaccine? Available data with flu zone quadrivalent use in pregnant women are insufficient to inform vaccine-associated risks of adverse developmental outcomes. But didn't the that paper and the and the CDC say it's safe? It's safe in pregnancy. Right. But there's no studies. Correct. Okay. So they're saying it's probably safe because they've given it to millions of guinea pigs, namely other human beings, not guinea pigs. <laughs> <laughs> probably should have given it to a million guinea pigs first to actually see what happened to them. They did give it, by the way, to rabbits. They gave it to female rabbits and they found no adverse effects into the fetus or pre-weaning development due to the flu zone quadrivalent vaccine. Okay. And as far as lactation goes, so we know, we know it's safe for rabbits. So if you have a rabbit at home, right, you could give your, safely give your rabbit this vaccine. Unless it's a male rabbit which we'll talk about in two seconds. <laughs> it is not known whether flu zone quadrivalent is excreted in human milk. Data are not available to assess the effects of flu zone on the breastfed infant or on milk production or excretion. But take it while you're, you know, take it while you're breastfeeding. No problem. All right. So what's in it? Okay. So prepared from the influenza viruses propagated in embryon, embryonated chicken eggs, Inactivated by formaldehyde, purified in a linear sucrose density gradient solution, which I have no idea what that is. The virus is then chemically disrupted using a non-iogenic surfactant, octylphenol ethoxylate, which has the trade name Triton X. <laughs> Sounds like a summary. Okay. I'm glad you're reading this and not me. Producing a split virus. The split virus is further purified and then suspended in sodium phosphate buffered isotonic sodium chloride solution. Antibiotics are not used in the manufacture of this vaccine. The single dose pre-filled syringe and the single dose vial are manufactured and formulated without 
thimerosal. Okay, which is the, the one that is very, has been proven to be problematic. Yeah, it's mercury. Yeah, it's a small percentage of mercury in it, but why take any? Yeah. The five millimeter multi-dose vial presentation contains thimerosal. So for any listener or anybody who knows you in someone in your family who wants to get the flu vaccine and they're of reproductive age or even any age, I guess whatsoever, you, you should make sure they ask for individual vials and not the multi-dose vial. Okay. Very simple thing to ask for. All right. Um, Carcinogenesis, mutagenesis, and impairment of fertility. Fluzone quadrivalent has not been evaluated for carcinogenic or mutagenic potential or for impairment of male fertility in animals. So female rabbits were okay. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't bother injecting any male rabbits. Vaccination of female rabbits with fluzone revealed no evidence of impaired female fertility. Okay. So, in summary, I don't know. What am I going to say here? <laughs> uh, don't get the flu. <laughs> no, it's okay, if, it's okay if you get the flu. The flu is a, is a normal part of life. Your body is going to fight it. If you get severe symptoms like you described, then you may want to, to take it to uh, your doctor um, and see if you might want to take some of the medications that are recommended. Um, for those of you who feel a little bit more conservative, um, I think it was great to say that if you feel like you've been exposed, that um, what is the medication's name again? Again, Marisol? Oh, Tamiflu or uh, Tamiflu. Or, sorry, yeah, Tamiflu. Um, that it's that it's safe and that that is an option for those of you who feel like you want to avoid having the flu in pregnancy. But I think um, the breakdown is great, Stu. Like you're saying that there's not a lot of evidence to support what they're saying, except for the studies that were done in a year in the year with the um, H1N1, and that was a really bad virus. That's not really what we're presenting with currently. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think that some people who want to get the vaccine, it doesn't seem like there's significant downside to getting the vaccine. Um, it's just because it, because it's been, it's never been tested for safety, but it's been given to millions of pregnant women. Now the question is, will we discover something downstream? Cause you know, the, the, our talk about every time we mess with mess with mother nature, we, there, there's going to be consequences and we may not know them for, for generations down the way, but. But it also, it also doesn't uh, necessarily protect you from the virus that's happening that year. And it makes you feel crappy when you get the virus, the vaccine. That's so, true too. you know, if you have something that, if you're getting a vaccine for something that, that is actually deadly for most people, then it makes sense to take those risks. But, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't make that decision. I'm just trying to give a counter perspective that the flu is a, is a normal thing that happens. If you're, if you have other comorbidities that could affect you having um, more sensitivity to having pneumonia, then obviously that's something that you should consider. But for a normal, healthy person, um, especially something that hasn't been tested in pregnancy, 
Um, I just wonder why you would want to do that. And why would an organization like the CDC or the American College OBGYN recommend it not just to women who have higher morbidities or higher risk factors like asthma or other lung problems, mm-hmm. but rec- and it's not even recommended. They say it's needed. It's needed by all pregnant women. And not only is it needed by all pregnant women, but it's needed at the same time that you're giving Tdap, which has three other vaccines in it, tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. And you get you need to have your COVID shot at the same time. So you're getting one, two, three, four, five. You're getting five vaccines at one time, none of which have ever been tested for safety alone, let alone all five at the same time. And then a month or two later, you're, 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 you need to have your respiratory syncytial virus vaccine to prevent something, again, that, we, that the, they don't ever tell you what the actual risk is to your baby if you don't get the shot. They just tell you your risk is higher of being hospitalized, but they don't tell you what that actual risk is. It's 2.44 times higher than an equal cohort of non-pregnant women, according to that one study, which seemed fairly well, you know, as, as well done as it could be. But 2.44 times what? <laughs> right. Right. If the hospitalization is one in a million, then then not getting vaccinated gives you a 2.4 per million chance of not being of, of being hospitalized. So we don't know. You have to know what the denominator is. We talk about this all the time. You know, it's it's just the way it goes. So, um, okay. Thank you for doing that work in a, in a time when it's, you know, uh, people are probably thinking about whether or not to do the flu shot and what consequences of getting the flu could have on them or their brand new baby. It's great to get this information. So thanks for taking time to do that. You're welcome. And, and, you know, I think people probably knew from the very beginning where this would end with me, (laughs) but (laughs) look at, you know, there's some things that I said make sense, not very many, but there were some (laughs) that said that that makes sense. But again, being suspicious. And also we talked at the very beginning, you know, this isn't going to change. This sort of tyranny isn't going to change until it's bad enough. And it's not bad enough yet. And when it's bad enough, we'll know because people will rise up and say, I've had enough of this tyranny yeah. and this shit. Yeah. Uh, and you said something just a minute ago. The last thing I'll say is you said, you know, if it's a vaccine that works for some serious life-threatening illness, that's okay. But I'm thinking of the vaccine schedule and how many of those things you're getting vaccinated for are seriously life-threatening? Yeah. It's a good that's thing to look at. You're going to die from that disease, but a small number of people are going to die from tripping on their front stairs as they go down. Should we get rid of all stairs? I mean, uh, there's always something. And again, the you have to weigh the intervention versus the, the uh, uh, and the and the downsides of the intervention, which is not really done, especially if the intervention generates revenue. Right. Thank you so much. Welcome. So everybody, again, thank you for giving us this time, an hour and a half of your time. Really appreciate that. I know sometimes these deep dives get long, but you can listen to them in segments. <laughs> <laughs> it's not three hours. <laughs> and support our sponsors. And uh, until next time. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.